I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Richard Gale. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Now, you're a geologist, right? How would you define geology or a geologist to people? For me, a geologist is somebody who studies the, the Earth and, and, by extension, the other planets to uh, learn about the physical world, how it works, how it behaves in all its um, areas, I suppose. So it's a, it's a very diverse subject. Um, a bit like astronomers look at the universe, geologists look at the planets. I can put it that way. In this podcast series, we try to meet people at various stages in their career, uh, students, uh, you know, field leaders, and everyone in between. Uh, what stage of your career are you at? I guess I'm kind of halfway through in most people's minds. I've, I've made it to being a professor, which is a big thing in the UK. Um, yeah, so I've I've got to the top of the ladder, as it were, um, <clears throat> but I'm I, I've still got half my career ahead of me in terms of uh, you know supervising students, doing my teaching, doing more research, and and of course leading Envision. Wonderful. And what is Envision? So Envision is is a mission um, which I sort of lead. Um, it's it's a European uh, medium class mission. Uh, a bit that will go to Venus more or less at the end of the decade, about 10 years time, um, and we'll look at activity and climate and history and, and actually all those things that integrate together. Um, that is the purpose of the mission. It's kind of Earth observing at, at Venus. Excellent. Uh, and why is a geologist, someone we always think of as looking down at the ground, uh, working with a spacecraft, something that goes up in the sky? <laughs> So that's an interesting question, and it, and it kind of relates to uh, my career itself, I suppose. When I was at, at school, I knew I wanted to study the planets, and especially Venus. Don't ask me why, but I always did. And then um, <clears throat> there were two sort of possible routes. You could go into astronomy and, and look through a telescope and point your finger at the sky sort of thing. Or actually, you could understand the planet and how it works. And, and to do that, you needed to do geology. And the actual truth is, at the time when I was sort of 16, thinking about what am I going to do, I thought, if I don't succeed as an academic, there are many more jobs I can do as a geologist than as an astronomer. Um, so the pragmatic part of me thought, I'll do geology. Uh, but I'm really glad I did, because actually to, to understand Venus and to understand even the Earth properly, um, we, we need all the skills that geologists have. We, we no longer look through telescopes at the planets. We use all kinds of instruments and they're all in orbit. Um, so, well, they're not all in orbit. There's things on the ground as well, of course. But, but a lot of what I do is done from orbit. Wonderful. You were far more pragmatic at 16 than I was. Now, um, you said you went to school. Where did you go to school? What kinds of degrees did you get? So um, I, went, I went to... Uh, a comprehensive school, which is, I don't know if you know what that means in, in Canada, but so uh, we have um, private schools and we have public schools, I suppose, that are uh, state schools, I suppose I should say. Um, and so I went to a standard sort of state school and from there, it was a good school, but from there I, I chose to go to Imperial College to do geology. Um, I looked at about five universities and, and I thought Imperial was both the best in terms of reputation and also when I went for interview and everything I, I, I fell in love with the place I thought the people were lovely um, I loved I loved London um, I grew up not far from London so I was familiar with it um, and uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed being there. Wonderful and you did, did your undergrad masters and PhD there or? So I, yeah so that's a good question I, I did my undergraduate BSc degree so three-year degree in geology um, at Imperial um, and uh, a little sort of aside, but, but it was part of the University of London, and so you could go to other colleges in, in the university. And one of the places I'd looked at was UCL, which is another big college within 
the University of London, and they did planetary. And in my third year, I found out that, um, well, one of my lecturers told me that we could take a module from any other college in the University of London. And he, and he knew I wanted to do planetary. So he said, why don't you do the planetary module at UCL? And I did, and it was taught by a guy called uh, Professor John Guest. It was a lovely guy. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, and I really enjoyed it and we got along really well. And I talked to him about doing a PhD and he said, I'm afraid I can't take you on. I'm going for a major operation. He had mouth cancer and things. Um, but he recommended me to a chap called Lionel Wilson, Professor Lionel Wilson at Lancaster. And uh, again, I sort of went for interview. I talked to him and, uh, and, and, you know, he sort of said, I don't know much about Venus. I know nothing about geology, but I do uh, understand passion and, uh, and I, I'm really happy to take you on. Um, and again, I kind of never looked back, really. I loved it. Wonderful. That's excellent. Yeah, we've had many uh, fascinating speakers from Imperial College uh, on this podcast, so <laughs> you're in good standing. Now, I find with uh, most people, myself included, many career paths can be a little uh, circuitous. It's not really a, a linear path to where you end up. Um, have you faced any setbacks or turnarounds in your studies or career? Did you ever waver? At every stage, really. Um, so uh, when, I, when I went to my PhD, um, I, there was no funding. There were only two people in the UK who did planetary the year I did it. It was a really small field and there was just no, no money for it. Uh, my dad ran his own business, um, which was not a big thing. You know, it had, you know, it was really just a small family business. But he found out that um, that he could sponsor me, and 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 the government had a scheme whereby if you if an industry sponsored a student, then they put in half the money, and so he thought, well, this was a better option than me, uh, you know, trying to work somewhere else or or be unemployed at home, sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's how I was funded for the first year of my um, PhD, and then while I was there, my supervisor helped raise some money and, uh, and and I got additional funding for the for the following two years um, throughout the PhD, which was really good. Then of course I got no job at the end of it. There was, you know, you're always looking for a postdoc and uh, I had about 18 months without, without a real job. I ended up working in a cafe in Wimbledon. And, um, and one day I, I was going into Imperial where I obviously knew people from when I'd been an undergraduate um, and I was still trying to do research. So I needed somebody to sign my library card. And a chap called Mike Warner, who I knew really well, he was a geophysicist, said, uh, yeah, come on, I'll, I'll sign it. Come and have a chat. Tell me what you're doing. And, and we had about a three hour conversation. And at the end of that, he said, because he, he you know, basically asked me what I wanted to do, where my research was going and everything. And he said at the end of that, he said, in my research account, I have about 50,000 pounds from industry. And I can do whatever I want with it. I could buy a computer, I could go around the world, or I could give you a postdoc. It's 10 months of money. Uh, you can start in January. This was like November. <laughs> Did that really just happen? So life is really strange, but it fitted very much with, with what my PhD supervisor Lionel had said, which was, if you really want to do something, you've only got one choice. You, ha you have to be in the right place at the right time to get something. Mm -hmm. If you don't know what the time is, you have to be in the right place all of the time until the opportunity arises. And that's basically what happened. I was always doing that work. I was going into Imperial and, I, and, and eventually an opportunity came up. And, uh, and again, you know, never looked back really. Um, that's certainly not the only interruption. At the end of my um, time at, at that stage as a postdoc in at Imperial, I was going to go to the University of Arizona and then that fell through because uh, the person I was going to replace had leukemia and, and they had to keep him on, otherwise he would lose his medical insurance. And so that meant they had no money to, to hire me. Um, and my boss, Mike at the time, um, created a post as, as admissions tutor for me. And I did that for another three years. Um, and then, you know, just really had to move on, I suppose. And there was no money in Venus at that time. Um, but the other thing that's always been interesting to me, and I've always worked on, as you'll know, um, is engineering geology and uh, <clears throat> studying, applying what I studied for practical purposes as, is a real reward in doing that. So I asked a lot of friends and um, I ended up uh, applying for a number of jobs and, and uh, places, really. 
and uh, ended up working at a place called JMP, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was a lovely small company. And at the interview, they said, you know, we, we last had a geologist eight years ago and it's taken us seven years to figure out that was a mistake. <laughs> and, uh, and so they, they took me on and, um, and I thoroughly enjoyed the three years there. But, um, but then uh, a phone call out of the blue um, really saying that the person I used to help at, in help at Imperial in civil engineering by a guy called Mike Hallow was retiring and he strongly recommended that they they hire me to replace him um, and so they said would you come for interview and I did and got the job and then I spent 10 years in civil engineering um, developing all the sort of radar techniques that we use to monitor and and characterize the ground um, from from an engineering point of view we look at tunneling we look at groundwater movements um faults in the ground and on all those sorts of things and we've made some amazing discoveries along the way but those same tools and techniques are, are what i'm taking to venus that's that's how i proposed my mission to venus and um and you know it almost came full circle really after 10 years and i got a job at royal holloway which is back in an earth science department and, and really focusing on Venus and other missions being selected. So yeah, a pretty circuitous career. <laughs> but it also sounds like everything you did was leading up to this, uh, to this moment that you're at right now. Uh, you've got that engineering know-how, um, that hard work, grit and determination, uh, but also the geological background uh, to analyze what you're gonna find on the planet. And I think that's a, a good lesson actually, that you never know what is going to be useful later in your life. And I'll give you an, a, a really odd example. But uh, when I went for the interview at JMP, the, the industry that I ended up working in for three years, um, I was getting a bit of a grilling from the director who was interviewing me. Uh, I had about 20 minutes of that. And then the um, executive director, I suppose, the, the, the head boss sort of walked past and he said, oh, hello, have we talked start date and salary yet? And you could see this guy's face drop. It's like I haven't even told him he's got a job yet. <laughs> and he, he looked at my CV and he ran his finger down and, and he got to the bottom and he pointed to the fact that I'd worked in a cafe and I'd not only worked in the cafe, but I'd worked there so long I became assistant manager and I, I worked my way up, if you like. And he said, that's why we're employing you because that tells me you'll work hard at whatever you do and you'll apply yourself to whatever your task you're given. And so, you know, we're willing to take a chance with you. So you never know uh, how things are gonna work out and, and what's going to be useful. And I'll tell you honestly, those years in the cafe also gave me a, a tremendous skill, um, which, is, which is hard to acquire, I think, um, but it gave me a tremendous skill to, to talk to strangers all the time, be comfortable talking to strangers. Um, and, and that is tremendously useful in this career. Absolutely. And it makes you appreciate um, the jobs that came after, too, I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I don't <laughs> want to work in a cafe again. <laughs> um, now, with your work, I'm curious, uh, have you made any discoveries that you'd care to share? Yeah, so I, I, I've been lucky enough, I think, to make some really quite amazing discoveries um, that were, were completely unexpected. Uh, so when, when we were just studying the radar data for London and looking at all these ground movements, I thought what we should try and do to disentangle all the different things that were going on and try and look for real geological movements uh, was to use what we call opposite look radar data. So you look at it from one direction and you look at it also from the other direction. And that allows you to isolate the movement that's vertical, which is lots of things cause vertical movement, from movement that's horizontal, really east-west. And really, geology is the only thing that moves the ground in an east-west way, in a horizontal way. And when we did this, we were absolutely blown away because London turned out to have huge big blocks, sort of five, ten kilometres across, that were arranged, um, you know, sort of staggered along each other. And they were offset, the, the boundaries were where we knew there were faults. And these blocks were moving in the radar data. They were moving at one or two millimeters a year. Mm. So suddenly we had evidence from the radar that, they, that the faults in London are active. And, and we sort of started looking around this because this really blew our minds, as I say. 
Um, and so we looked into the, the seismic modeling and the, the earthquake modeling for, for the UK. And it turns out that this quiet zone around London that has no earthquakes is for two reasons. Uh, there are no seismometers there because the seismometers just pick up the noise of London, the traffic, the, the tube trains and everything else. Um, and so they don't bother within 100 kilometers of London. They don't have them. And they've started to now. Things have got better now. But, uh, but for, you know, for a long time, they didn't. And the other reason is that what these movements are is a tenth or less of the rate of movement that you get, say, in California or where you are, I guess, in, in, in uh, Canada. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, not centimetres a year, but millimetres a year, really small movements. And what that means is the recurrence interval of the earthquake is not decades, it's centuries. Mm. And then when you look back through the record, you realise, hang on, there are records of earthquakes in the London area. There's, there's earthquakes in the 1350s. There's, there's evidence of actual earth fault rupture in the ground from Bronze Age trackways 3,000 years old. So the evidence is actually there and it's on the right time kind of time scale. And suddenly you're realizing we now have a tool that can measure these movements and it correlates with earthquakes that, you know, they're not devastating. They're magnitude five, maybe six at most, uh, but they're still really significant. And, it, and it's, a, it's opened up a whole new understanding of particularly continental regions that they're, they're not these blocks that move around with, with the plates. They're actually deforming internally, um, and and there's and we sort of knew that as well. You know, we know there's inversion and things like that going on, but it, it suddenly made sense of it all. And everywhere we've looked in China, in Australia, and other places, we see these same patterns, these movements. Um, so it seems like it's a common thing in in you know modestly active areas we can detect these millimeters a year movements. It's funny, I've, like you said, I've never heard of a, an earthquake in, in London. And I'm surprised that all the stone buildings would, would withstand that or wouldn't show the damage. They're all too young. We haven't had an earthquake in probably 500 years. Oh. Um, so, so we don't have anything in London that's 500 years. Well, we have a few things like the, the Tower of London, but that's so robust that that wouldn't, wouldn't be a problem. And it's often rebuilt, of course. So um, yeah, so so I think there is there is lots of circumstantial evidence. There's lots of historical records, um, but there hasn't been one in sort of the modern era, certainly. Um, and it may may not happen for another two or three hundred years. Um, so so the plan at the moment, and the reason you haven't heard about it, is partly that we don't want to panic people, um, because the the housing stock and the, and the buildings generally in London are renewed on a sort of 50 to 100 year time scale and that's probably good enough the codes have been put in the new builds are built to that standard and um and and so in the future <clears throat> if we have an earthquake you know if what happens tomorrow it'll be a little bit messy but it won't won't be hugely damaging you know tiles will come off the roof and things like that but um and it'll it's more the panic than the damage right and, and i guess that's the uh the danger with most natural d disasters too absolutely yeah that's right and then the amazing thing about that discovery um, and the reason, you know, it, it kind of links in with everything is those are the kinds of movements that I think are certainly taking place on Venus. Um, I mean, there possibly are movements up into the centimetres a year, but, but I think Venus is very much like our continents and lots of, and it's deforming all over the place. You know, we're seeing these blocks moving around and we're seeing that evidence in, in the sort of static geology that we can see, but I, I can infer that they are active and moving. And now we have a tool that can measure that movement and we can do it from orbit, which of course is, is hugely beneficial at Venus. Oh, absolutely. I guess orbiters last longer than things that land on the planets, right? Absolutely. I mean, Venus is a horrible place at 450 degrees C, 90 atmospheres pressure, corrosive and, and poisonous and everything else. And the longest anything survived on the surface is just over two hours, which was Venera 13 in the early 80s. And that literally was a two-ton tank with 20 millimeter um, military grade aluminium armor plate as a sphere and, and, and super cool to liquid nitrogen and so on you know it was a massive engineering undertaking and it lasted two hours. Wow <laughs> so what, what else are you hoping to find on Venus uh, aside from these micro um, faults? I think there's lots of different types of activity on Venus um, so there'll be almost certainly volcanism. I think most people think there will be active volcanism. 
Um, but I also think there's an active weathering cycle, not as active as it is on the earth, but <coughs> excuse me, perhaps more active than, uh, than the ocean floor, for example, and certainly orders of magnitude more active than Mars because the atmosphere is so dense, it's almost like an ocean. Mm -hmm. um, and so I expect to be able to detect changes with the radar um, related to those sorts of movements. Uh, but also we have an infrared system, uh, sort of spectral camera uh, that can see through um, about five or six windows in the, in the atmosphere, very low resolution, sort of 50 kilometers because of the clouds and the height of the clouds. But, but we can see the ground and we can, we can detect what different kinds of rocks are on the ground from granites to basalts and weathered rocks and things like that. You said five to six windows. What's a window? Ah, good question. Yes, I'm talking jargon, aren't I? So um, when we look out at, of our atmosphere at, the, at space, we're looking through what we call a window in the visible. And there are a number of other windows in the atmosphere in which you can see out, or if you're outside, you can see in. Um, and then there are other parts which are opaque that are not windows. So ultraviolet, a sort of a bit be into the higher ultraviolet and, and then into X-rays and gamma rays, they don't reach the ground. Um, and there's several parts of the infrared that don't reach the ground and don't get back out again. And that's primarily the cause of the greenhouse effect. It traps that thermal energy. Uh, and Venus has that a hundredfold because it's a very thick, dense atmosphere. Um, and it's also completely covered in clouds. Mm -hmm. so, so there's no visible, um, and there's only five or so, five or six, I think, uh, of these quite narrow windows that, where you can see the ground. And they, they weren't known about until Venus Express went there and, and accidentally found it at the, the one micrometer or two micrometer uh, level, uh, you know, window. And, uh, and suddenly they realized, well, you can, see, you can see the thermal signature of the ground on the night side through the clouds. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've studied it and we now know, and, and a German chap called uh, Jörn Helbert has, has developed an instrument um, that is able to exploit this and map the surface. And, and so give us some quite good chemistry, um, albeit at a low resolution, but some quite good chemistry. Uh, but also detecting hotspots from active volcanoes. Uh, and we have other instruments that can track volcanic gases. Because one of the things we want to understand is how this activity drives Venus today. How does Venus work? Mm -hmm. um, what sort of cycles take place in the atmosphere and, and the interior? Um, you know, is it always like it is now? Or, or did it once have oceans? Was it once more Earth-like? Or indeed, you know, some, some people think it might have even been even more extreme in the past um, at certain times. So, you know, what evidence might there be for that um, and how those processes working? Because we know the clouds are sustained by probably volcanic activity, but, but by sulfur dioxide and water vapor. So we're going to track those things. Wow, it's a very ambitious mission. <laughs> now, one of my favorite uh, parts of this interview series has been to hear uh, field stories. Um, now, you've been a geologist, so I assume you've done some field work. Uh, probably not too much field work with uh, the European Space Agency because uh, you don't go to space, I guess. Um, but, you know, funny things happen in the labs or, or even in the office. Uh, do you have any fun field stories you'd care to share? I, I have a few. I've been thinking about this because uh, field work is one of my favorite activities, uh, but I only really do it with students. So I, I, I don't go on field expeditions as such. We are planning to um, to sort of ground truth the, the Venus radar data by going to Iceland and uh, East Africa and a few other places where there's analogs for what we see on Venus, but we haven't done that yet. Um, so the only sort of expedition I've done is, is to uh, Chicxulub, where we um, were putting in seismometers for, the, for surveying the ground crater. Mm. Um, and, and that was really interesting. And just for reference, Chicxulub is important because? That's the site of the impact that killed the dinosaurs. So it's a pretty big site and it's, it's right on the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. Fantastic place. We, um, we had a sort of beach house type of place which we rented out for, for all of us. Um, and uh, and it, was, it, was, it was really amazing. I mean, we were driving down on occasions 500 year old Mayan stone roads. They look like Roman roads. 
um, dead straight through the jungle to get to the sites where we were placing these seismometers. And it, it was it was just magical. You'd, you'd come across, you know, there's the famous sort of Chichen Itza type pyramids and things like that. But but actually there's there's hundreds of smaller ones all over the place and you just randomly come across Mayan ruins in the jungle. Um, so that was that was really magical. That was amazing. Um, I guess uh, the other end of the extreme, I mean, one of the first field trips I led with undergraduates um, was to an island called Arran off the west coast of Scotland, which is a classical first year field area for, for our students in the UK. And it's 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 known for midges and rain and uh, it's it's <laughs> and the rocks are grey. <laughs> you know, it's pretty hard. Um, but it, it, the geology is fairly simple, but uh, it, it was it was a great trip. But there was one day when uh, it was uh, something like a force nine gale, I think it was something like that, you know, sort of 50 mile an hour winds, that sort of thing. And, and some of the students had gone up on the mountain. A, a mountain in, in Britain is, is only a thousand feet, you know, it's not big. Um, but we'd got, they'd gone up there and we, we had our mountain bikes. And so we, uh, me and the other guy supervising, cycled up to, to kind of find them and hiked it up the, up the mountainside uh, to try and get them down. And as we got there and did so, an air sea rescue helicopter hovered down low over us. And they opened the door and they said, what the flaming hell are you doing? Get down from that mountain. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, yeah, we uh, quite quickly left. <laughs> it was uh, yeah quite an experience that went down in history. <laughs> <laughs> Those both sound amazing. Um, well, maybe not so much the the gale force winds, uh, but certainly the Mexico adventure. Um, I mean, on the one hand, seeing something so old as those temples and the roads, but also knowing that you were at the site of something much, much older and, and uh, globally significant. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's right. And, and, and there were these cenotes, they call them, which are these sort of pools of water in a hollow, like in a sinkhole in the, in the limestone. Um, and they, I don't think we even realised it at that time, but it was sort of being realised at that time. They, they sit on the rim of the crater, so they form a circle around the rim of the crater. So they're exploiting whatever crack was created by the crater and has propagated upwards through the limestone, later limestones. So you could almost kind of see the crater in the ground still. It was amazing. Wow. Uh, it's big. It's big. 200 and something kilometers across, it's big. And the cracks in the, the uh, Earth's surface still exist after 66 million years. Yeah, it's very emotive, really, actually, when you think how much the world changed in a fraction of an instant. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you're background obviously you know is is, is dinosaurs and and you know I, I i do sort of tell people you know dinosaurs are still very successful there's there's more species of dinosaur on our planet than are our mammals um but they're all feathered flying varieties um and uh, you know that huge sort of variety and especially the big ones all just wiped out in an instant uh, and we would have been too without a shadow of doubt we're you know nothing more than about 25 kilos survived mm -hmm. Yeah, that's not very big. <laughs> not very big. <laughs> now, going back to what you're working on right now, um, Venus. Uh, why is it important that we study Venus and understand its inner workings? I think there's a number of reasons. Um, there's a number of sort of sales pitch reasons, if I can give those first. Um, you know, we are discovering many more Earth-like planets around other stars in Earth-like orbits. And, and actually, there's two in our solar system. And one of them is Earth. And the other one is just about as extremely not Earth-like as you can imagine. Um, and, and we really want to understand why that is. Um, but in a sort of deeper sort of geological sense, I suppose, from my perspective, there are, there's been a lot of studies of small terrestrial planets, Mars, the Moon, Mercury, um, and we really understand them. Actually, they're quite simple. Mars, geologically, is quite boring, dare I say it. <laughs> Um, you know, and, and we kind of know how it works. Um, and it's a very simple story and it dies very early in the solar system's history and, and very little happens for three or four billion years. But Earth obviously has been changing and active and, and hugely different over time and is still changing. And, you know, we wouldn't recognise our planet if we came back 100 million years ago with dinosaurs on it. But really, 
we really wouldn't recognize our planet if we came back a billion years ago and it was almost completely covered in ice with a, a sort of snowball earth and and venus is the only other point or experiment if you like that will help us understand how the big planets work because they are nothing like those small planets like mars and the moon they're not simple they're complex and they're active and they change over time in quite significant ways and we don't know the history of venus of course at all we we like i think we romanticize that it once had oceans i suspect it probably never did um, but but we don't know that and, and it's important to find out and it's important to find out what, what the future of our planet is like. Um, and in some ways, geologically, Venus appears to be a bit more like an earlier version of the Earth, maybe a billion years ago in a geological sense. Uh, but in a climate sense, it's a much later version of Earth. It's what's going to happen to our planet in probably a billion or two billion years time as the sun gets hotter over time. Um, and, and our climate eventually is forced into a runaway greenhouse, just like Venus. Um, you know, four billion years ago, even three and a half billion years ago, Venus had the same temperature, if you like, from the sun, the same amount of energy from the sun that we have today. So Venus could really have been Earth-like three or four billion years ago. Um, and it has, and it has, its climate has been forced away from that, and we see a very different planet. But geologically, we see differences as well, and we really want to understand them to kind of make sense of how big planets work, and therefore what we might be seeing when we detect other Earth-like planets around other stars. Fascinating. Are you saying that Earth will have runaway volcanism too in its future? Well, so that's an interesting question because I'm not sure that I think Venus ever had runaway volcanism. Um, and it, it sort of depends what you mean because <clears throat> in some ways what people describe as the sort of catastrophic resurfacing or the, the very rapid global resurfacing is just plate tectonics. 60% um, of the Earth's surface is remade every 100 million years or so. That's pretty rapid. Yeah. Um, you know, and so you, know, you look at the Pacific Ocean or the Atlantic Ocean and you think it's there forever. No, it'll be gone in 50 million years time. The continents are around a long time and, and they do stick around and move around and, and, and record that history. Um, and I think Venus is very similar actually. It has these vast plains um, the resurfacing is very different in the sense there's no organized plate tectonics, but they are broken into blocks and they resurface and, and there are big rift systems and things like that. And I think it's a much more dynamic but long-term uh, kind of resurfacing in the same way that we have on the Earth in many ways. Much more, I suppose, like our continents as well, because it's, it's hot and so they're, they're, they're more continental-like materials, I suppose. Um, and so, <clears throat> so I think what, what I am saying is that climatically, we can't control, I'd say we, you know, the, the planet in a sense can't control its temperature once all of the greenhouse gases like methane, carbon dioxide and so on are gone. You can, you can lower them and lower them and lower them, um, but there comes a point at which without any of them, the planet still heats up because mm. of the increased solar energy. And as it heats up, water evaporates. Water is a really powerful greenhouse gas. So you, you hit a threshold at some point, probably in a billion years time, and, and you hit a runaway uh, greenhouse effect. And, and our atmosphere presumably will go the same way as, as Venus. We'll get very, very hot, steamy oceans and they'll slowly boil dry and, and then there'll be no, you know, just a thick, dense atmosphere and so on. So we're possibly climatically looking at the future of the Earth. Well, that's in a billion years, so... <laughs> we don't need to stay up at night worrying about that well you know i'm a geologist that's not a very long period of time <laughs> that's true <laughs> uh, yeah no it, it, it is uh, it's a long way off not something we immediately have to worry about you're clearly very uh excited about your work what's the best part about your work lots of people will talk about a particular bit of research and of course i'm passionate about venus i love the planet i love the geology i love all of those things i love field work and everything else but for me, what I really love are people uh, and, the, and the kind of excitement you get out of passing things on. And I, I've learned that there are two kinds of scientists. There are, there are the competitive scientists who 
you know, can be real high flying, successful people. And we can learn a lot from what they do, but they're on their own. They, they, they're like a blazing candle in the dark racing away. And then there are other people, and my supervisor was one of them, and, and Mike and other people I've met through my career uh, are, are like that as well, who their legacy isn't so much what they did as who they inspired. I mean, there's the famous phrase of uh, Newton, isn't there? I, I, you know, I am where I am because I stand on the shoulders of giants. And I, I, I'd like to be one of those giants that, you know, I often tell students some students, not all of them, uh, of course. Um, I often tell some students that they're, they're, they're better than me. They're gonna fly higher than I ever have and will. Um, and, but I can help them. And that's, that's a real, uh, that's something I take a real joy in. Um, but also, you know, it, it, I don't like to prove people wrong necessarily. What I want to do is really understand things and, and make sense of what's going on and bring people with me. So even, you know, at the sort of colleague level, at the science level, <clears throat> when I talk about Venus and I talk about my research or I talk about London and, and the radar data and my research there and so on, I'm not trying to tell people they've got it wrong and they may have got it wrong, but that's not what I'm about. I'm trying to help us all move forwards and understand things better because actually as scientists, we're all wrong. You know, we never, get, we never have a perfect understanding um, and all we can do is, is try to move forwards and, and get ever closer to the truth. We can be less wrong than we were. And, and I think we are better doing that as a community than we are as individuals. And, and so those two things sit together for me. Excellent. Um, yeah, you are very inspiring, I think. Um, and I'm sure working on such a large and complex uh, project as um, the mission to Venus, you work with a, a large uh, collaborative team. Yes, I mean, all across Europe and America, and you know, I even sort of talk to people in, in India and Russia and, and places all over the world. Um, and, you know, one of the things, those, those two traits, I suppose, um, are part of the reason that Envision is successful, I would say, because you can doggedly fight for something on your own, um, and be ignored. But if you make a strong case and, and pull it together with a team and you convince more people to come on board, you build a groundswell of, of momentum and then you know, the powers that be can't ignore it. And I think that's largely what's happened. We've, we've convinced people that Venus is worth studying. We've convinced people that this is the way to do it. And, and they're going ahead and doing it. Um, it's, I, I lead it because I think those are my skills, but actually it's not my mission, it's our mission. We, we, we all bring lots of different elements and strengths to this mission and it works because we all do that, not because I say you should do this. That's a great perspective. By the way, when did it launch? <laughs> it won't launch for a long time, 10 years from now. Oh, good. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, that's another thing people ask about, but if, if you have that perspective of, can I inspire? What's my legacy going to be? Who, you know, where can I go? I tell people, you know, I, for my PhD, I studied Magellan data. That was at Venus when I did my PhD. And that was put together by people in the US over a decade or more. Um, and, you know, I, I have them to thank for that mission being there and me being able to work on the data. They didn't hold it back. It was freely given. Um, and the more of us that got to look at it over time, the more we've understood Venus. And when Envision goes, it takes a long, long time to put a mission together. It took 10 years to get to the point where we were refined enough and had enough of a team together and so on um, to get selected. And it will take another 10 years to do the detailed design, the build, the testing, the getting there and, and everything else. So it's, you know, it's 20 years of your life. So it goes from, from sort of early part of my career to the late part of my career. When the mission finishes and the science stops, I'll be retiring literally a few weeks later, I think. Um, so it won't be me that benefits from this mission. I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it to understand Venus um, and to inspire the next generation of people to benefit from it. And hopefully one or two of them will come up with questions 
and ways to answer those questions that will lead to the next mission and, uh, and the next cycle of, of uh, development and so on. We're all links in the chain. <laughs> now, it's not all sunshine and roses, of course. Um, what's the, the worst part of your work or the most challenging? So there's, there's two things that are really difficult. One is that I don't have any real, uh, how do I describe this? I, as a leader, I lead from the bottom. <laughs> I, I, I'm not in charge. ESA are in charge of the mission. ESA make the decisions and I have everything I do is by persuasion. Um, and, and that makes life difficult because they want to do what they want to do. They, they will make decisions that I tear my hair out trying to understand. Um, and, it, and it often goes in the wrong direction from my perspective and, and actually the team's perspective of, for the mission. They have their reasons and, you know, quite often, you know, they're probably good reasons and we just don't fully understand them. They're doing their job as well. Uh, but, but it is a real challenge because they don't include us in what they're doing. You know, I, I, I would be happier. I, I know they can't involve us in every decision and, you know, we don't know necessarily all the things that need to go. But I would be happier if they just kind of came to us and said, these are the things we're thinking about. What do you think? And then they went away and made a decision, but at least we were kind of involved in the process. And it seemed frustrating and difficult not to be part of the wheels, as it were, in that sort of system. Um, and then <clears throat> the other aspect that I find quite difficult is that I have an ordinary job. I'm a, I'm a university professor. I have lecture courses, I have field trips, I have research students. You know, and I have to do, uh, I'm deputy head of department, I'm head of teaching, so I have all these admin jobs as well. And, and it's basically a full-time job, and Envision is a full-time job, and you somehow have to make those things work together. And I have three young kids and a wife and everything, and, you know, you have to make family life work too. Um, and it's, that's a real challenge. It's, it's, a, it's a joy as well in many ways, you know, it's not all negative. But it is really hard work at times and it can be quite demoralizing and it and it sometimes you just need to kind of grin and bear it and, and get through it. Um, and I think you have to have a certain amount of grit to do these things. Yeah, you sound like you have grit um, in abundance. <laughs> now, um, I'm curious, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And if so, has that impacted your studies or your career in any way? That's a very strange a question um, because I suspect you have a certain context for it, which I don't have. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm mixed race. I, my, my dad is Indian. Well, he's actually Malaysian, but he was born, his family are from India. Um, and my mum is English. And I, I like to think I'm a, I'm a sort of product of the empire, really, just sort of brought all these random people together after 8,000 years. And, and here I am, sort of thing. Um, but but I've never really as such experienced any prejudice or difficulty because of that. What has been difficult and what has held me back is something that I, I'm not sure you would fully understand in Canada. But as I said, I went to a comprehensive school. I don't fit into the right circle of people. I don't easily get grants and uh, nods and winks to, uh, you know, get on in life easily. You, everything is kind of climbing the ladder on your own. And I don't have somebody who, who did it before me. None of my family went to university, let alone do a PhD or anything like that. Um, and of course I've had people like Mike and, and Lionel and other people who have helped and have looked out for me and, and have uh, sort of opened up doorways and connections and so on. And, and, and you know, you, you have to take advantage of those things. So um, you sort of, ultimately, I suppose, do create your own uh, environment and circle and, and connections. But yeah, I mean, other people just fly through and I, I do see that and, and think, how do they do it? And, and it's, they talk in a certain way, they, they know certain people and, you know, from day one, they're already a rung above where I was. <laughs> there definitely are uh, benefits to having uh, parents who went to the right schools and, and knew all, had all those connections before you were even born. And that's something that we don't often um, acknowledge, uh, but it's definitely there. Uh, and that's actually why I asked that question in that slightly odd way, because 
we all have things that um, we struggle with, um, not through any benefit or, or uh, failings of our own, just because that's how the world is at this moment. Um, and I feel that naming it is the first way of uh, dealing with it as a society. I think that's probably true. I think there is at the moment a little bit too much the other way in terms of uh, it's always somebody else's fault or it, it wasn't because of me mm -hmm. um, or I'm held back because of this, that and the other. And I, I do think there needs to be a balance between recognising the very real structural things that hold people back. I mean, women, especially, I think, in society are held back by childbirth and, and things like that and, and attitudes of men, frankly. Um, and I see that a lot of times. It, oddly, it wasn't so bad at Imperial as it is, say, at Royal Holloway and other places that I've been. Um, and, you know, maybe there's just more resources there. I don't know. But, um, yeah, there, there's lots of different things that hold people back. And we do have to recognise them. And we do have to try and do something about those structural things. But I think the other side of the coin is we have to inspire and encourage people to work hard. And, uh, you know, not sit back and say, oh, well, I'm never going to get anywhere anyway. Why bother? You know, and, and that just perpetuates the problem um, it, itself. So I think I think we need both sides of that coin. We need we need to try and address the problems that we have. And we need to also inspire and encourage and, and give people grit and determination, frankly. Absolutely. And you again, you're very inspiring. Uh, I'm curious, who inspired you while you were studying? Yeah, many people. <laughs> and I can go right back, really. Um, so when I was at school, going right back to primary school, um, I had a, a teacher um, called Mrs. Philo, whose husband worked at a university. He was a maths professor. And he taught us maths at the age of five or six in a very simple way, but a very engaging way and an inspirational way. Um, and it just switched on my mind to that sort of thing. And then I had a, another teacher at that school who recognised my passion for planets and space and dinosaurs and those sorts of things and really encouraged it and, and helped me go forwards with it. He also helped me realise how you overcome problems. I mean, I, I had, I still had really a fear of heights. I get, you know, I get vertigo and I couldn't climb up any ladders or anything like that. And I remember in, in PE, you know, he, he basically said, don't try to climb up the ladder just try to cl climb to the next rung and then you know do that for a couple of weeks go to the next rung and by the end of the term I was at the top and it was an amazing feeling and it and then that inspired me because it made me realize that you don't have to be daunted by mountains you just have to take one step forward each time and you'll get there um, and I suppose that's that's really helped me through life and, uh, you know, I've already mentioned Mike Warner and, and Lionel Wilson and, and other people through my career who've been hugely inspirational to me. I, there's more people than I can name, really. Um, and colleagues I work with now, James and, and Philippa and others that, that you know, I, I wouldn't be where I am without them. Wonderful. And that's a great way to uh, accomplish any large task, uh, like sending a, a probe to Venus. Um, just take one step at a time and, yeah, don't think about the whole project, think about what needs to be done next. Um, now you mentioned you do have a, a large field of um, colleagues and people who inspire you. Um, do you feel like planetary science is a really open and welcoming field or is it uh, more insular and it, once you're, you're in, they look after their own? I don't think it's as simple as that. I think, I think there are people who are like that and there are people who are not like that. Um, so there are certain places, I'm not going to name them, um, <clears throat> who are very protected of their communities. And, and, you know, once you're in that particular university, you've got that reputation and you're part of that family and, and that's it, you know, and you're, you're you know, you're, you're, no one else is, is allowed near you sort of thing. Um, and there certainly are places like that within, within planetary as there are in, in other areas. Um, but there's a great many uh, places and people who aren't like that, who are open and have always been very open um, and, and kind of helpful. And you go and ask them questions and they, and they, they really help you. They really open up and, and, and give you support and ideas and everything else. Um, and <clears throat> one of the things that's come out of the pandemic, actually, was that 
we started, I, I used to be at Imperial, as you know, and so I still had PhD students at Imperial and we could no longer go in and, and meet with them. So we started setting up Teams meetings or Zoom meetings, things like that. Um, and we'd have a day where we'd go through all the students half an hour at a time sort of thing and, and, and catch up and see where they are and supervise them in that way. And it suddenly occurred to me that this is a way of doing things that is independent of time zones. Well, almost, um, you know, that is, in, is independent of distance and those sorts of barriers. And all those people that I've talked to over the years, like Richard Ernst at uh, Carlton University in, in Canada, um, uh, John Bedard and, and Lyle Harris, who are at the uh, um, Geological Survey in, in Quebec. Um, of course, I've just been to, to um, Vancouver and, I, and colleagues across the States and across Europe and so on, who are all in that same boat. We've all been kind of trying to do things uh, in our own little way, but we don't have the resources. We don't have a large group of people. We don't have hundreds of students um, supporting what we do. Um, and, you know, it's actually quite difficult to publish as a lone author. You, people are suspicious of it. So it's hard to break in in that sense. So that's how it perpetuates. And I suddenly realised that we could do something about it through these Zoom calls. Um, and so I set up what I call the um, research group of little people. Um, because, you know, we're all the little people in all our little places who are in isolation and suddenly we're not isolated anymore. Um, and we started talking to each other and we shared ideas and we started publishing together. You know, people put each other's names on their papers as we talked about those papers and, and gave ideas to each other and um, quizzed them. And I think the papers got better because they were read by more people and so on. Um, and we really, I think, developed a reputation and, and got papers published and got uh, broken the back of that. And especially with the mission, of course, that's really helped. But I think we're seeing a change. Um, and, and this sort of way of collaborating has, has revolutionised the little people, frankly, um, and it's opened those doors. Wonderful. I'm, yeah, I'm glad something that great came out of the pandemic with you. <laughs> now, you mentioned um, when the probe finally gets to Venus, that'll probably be, you know, just before your retirement date. Um, so if anyone's listening right now and wants to follow in your footsteps and maybe take your place uh, when you retire, what background or experience or courses would you recommend that they uh, pursue to uh, follow you up? So first of all, I'm going to say, follow your passion. That's the number one important thing to do. You're not going to succeed if you're not passionate about it. In academia, in, in research, you're not gonna succeed unless it's something you're really driven to do, unless you're really passionate about doing it. Lots of people will do a PhD, uh, don't get me wrong, they'll do a PhD and, and, and they'll enjoy it and they'll get a lot out of it, but they will go into industry or they go into a, a regular job because that was all they wanted to do. You know, it was a bit of fun for three or four years, that was it. If you really want to do what I've been doing, you have to have passion for it, you have to have drive um, to do it. So follow your passion. Um, and wherever it leads you, as, as I've talked about earlier, you know, my, my career has gone all over the place, really. And I, I never expected to, to be working in, in civil engineering with, with um, radar data and things like that. But, and, and at the same time, leading a mission to Venus. I mean, it's, it's, it's odd. It's amazing. Um, but, you know, all of those are doors that just opened and, uh, and I followed. Um, and lots of times you'll find things come up where you think, well, I could do that. That would be interesting, but it's not really what you want to do. And I, so just to give you a little bit more insight into the three hour conversation I had with Mike Warner, halfway through, he said, you know, I'm looking for a postdoc to um, work on Chicxulub and, and do numerical modeling of the impact crater and, and how it formed and that sort of thing and we, are you interested you're clearly quite capable are you interested and I I was really torn because it was a job after 18 months working in the cafe it was a job a real job um, but I, I kind of looked looked at him and thought about it and I said I you know I'd love to say yes but I can't because that isn't what I want to do that isn't what I'm really good at and I, I think I'd really struggled to do it 
And that's when he said, okay, tell me about what you do want to do. And that's led to the conversation that, that gave me the postdoc that was what I wanted to do. So yeah, follow your passion. And I don't think it matters too much what degree you do. Um, you can do a geological geoscience type degree. Uh, you could probably do an astronomy degree, I'm sure, certainly physics um, <clears throat> or chemistry, biology, all those things have applications in planetary science. I mean, planets are the whole entity of science. That's what we're studying. Um, so I don't think it matters too much what route you take in that sense. Numeracy really helps. So, you know, don't give up on the maths um, and, and get familiar with, with computers because you'll be working on computers the whole time. <laughs> That's the way things are. Uh, so those are just practical things that you can do. But no, follow your dream, follow your passion. Excellent. And for yourself, what was the most important course that you took? <laughs> um, so that's a really hard question. The geology degree itself gave me a really good kind of broad background. Um, and so I, I don't think I can pick out any one thing in the degree that was important in itself. It was, it was the integration of all those things that was important. You know, the kind of realizing that you have to understand volcanic processes to also understand sediments, to understand tectonics, um, all of those, and the, and the history of life and all those things, and they're interesting. Um, but it's how they fit together that, that, that is the inspiration for me. Um, and so even, you know, the planetary course at UCL, I wouldn't, I wouldn't single it out as an important thing. Um, the, the degree itself was the important thing. Um, and, and, you know, that's what led me. That's why I've never defined myself as a particular kind of geologist. I could say I'm a geomorphologist, I'm an engineering geologist, I'm a tectonic uh, geomorphologist or tectonic structural geology or a volcanologist or a planetary geologist. All of those. I'm all of those things and none of those. Things. So, um, yeah, I, I, I can't sort of pin one thing down as such. That's fair. <laughs> If you're all those things, then your specialization changes day by day. Now, um, you mentioned you have some grad students. Uh, what do you look for when you're choosing your grad students? A, a, student, a grad student has to be capable of doing what is necessary. So, you know, I do look for numeracy. I do look for um, the ability to present themselves well. I don't mean dress. I mean, you know, writing clearly and presenting their ideas in conversation clearly, those sorts of things being clear about what they want um, and you know the, the sort of basic skills that anybody needs um, sort of management skills those sorts of things I suppose you'd call them interpersonal skills and so on all those sorts of things that you need just to be able to get on in a PhD you're going to be both on your own and working with lots of people um, and, and it's your responsibility it's quite a big change from an undergraduate degree but <clears throat> um, you know given that sort of baseline and I'm really looking for motivation and for somebody who wants to do what they what what I'm asking them to do or or even comes to me with their own idea um, and uh, you know I've I've had a number of masters by research students which is a one-year kind of almost like an introduction to a PhD uh, which they do at Royal Holloway and um those uh, those studentships, they, they come to you with the ideas. They say, I'm, I'm really interested in Venus, so or Mars, even something else. Um, and they'll talk through the ideas that they have and I'll steer them in a certain way because I can you know, understand what they're, where they're coming from. Um, so I can help them focus in on a project that's going to be achievable and, and interesting to them. But it's really them that lead it. And I think that is, that is the most important thing in a student because if, if it's not, if they don't own it, if it's not theirs, then, then they will do a worse job. They may not even get through. Wonderful. And I love the way you casually throw shade at Mars. <laughs> they can take it. They get all the, the attention. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm very rude about Mars. It's, uh, you know, it's dead, it's boring, it's tiny. It's, uh, you know, it's there's nothing worth going there for. But no, it's, it's, it's an amazing place. It's, of course, somewhere where we can dream of walking around, which is not something we can do on Venus. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, it's, it gets a lot of um, publicity and a lot of money and everything else. And it's, it's difficult to 
feel that they deserve it sometimes. Now, um, you've mentioned again, uh, or before, that uh, when you retire, uh, Envision will be arriving at Venus. What would you, other than that, what would you like to be the legacy of your career? So, as I say, it's uh, it's people more than anything else. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Um, It's a very classic film, black and white film. I mean, I think there's newer versions, but uh, <clears throat> he's a he's a classic English schoolmaster. Works his way through the career through his career from turn of the century to through the First World War. Um, his wife dies in childbirth, so he doesn't have a wife or a child, and he's on his own most of his career. And right on his deathbed, they 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 sort of mourning him going, and um, and they say, you know, these other sort of heads in the school, teachers in the school, they say. It's a, the only the only sad thing is that he never had any children and he peps up and he says no no you're quite wrong I've had hundreds and hundreds of children and I think that's the legacy you know anybody who has had children understands that but that's the legacy what my students are my family when I when I uh, see Lionel at uh, LPSC or something like that one of the big conferences there's a dozen people surrounding him wanting to talk to him because he supervised all of them and he's inspired them and they love him really genuine you know he's a he's a lovely man he's like your uncle favorite uncle and um and you just want to spend time with him um and and i would love people to remember me for that above and beyond envision or any of the research i've done i'd like them to remember that I inspired them to do what they do. Because you know, uh, uh, the truth is, Envision will be remembered as Envision. Nobody knows space missions by the name of the person who proposed it. They know by the name of the mission. I, I don't even know who proposed Viking, for instance. Um, so Envision will be Envision. It'll be its own thing. And, and you know, I think I'm happy to let go of it in that sense. But, but my legacy, I would like to be the people that were inspired to study Venus, that were inspired to, to use Envision's data to make new discoveries and to, and to go on to their own great heights. You're planting the seeds of next, the next generation of scientists. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's, that's the best legacy anyone can hope for. Now, finally, um, I find that the world is changing very quickly um, in terms of how we, we live in it. And... Uh, the field that a person enters at the beginning of their career can be completely different and unrecognizable by the time they retire. You gave some great advice to young people for um, what to do for today, but what should they do to anticipate some of the changes that are coming to either geology or planetary science? Um, And what advice would you have to anticipate some of these changes? So, I mean, when I started my degree, geology was by and large not a numerate science. It was you know, in, in some places it was still an art subject um, and it was, you know, let's describe the rocks, let's look down at the fossils and draw them. And there were, at the same time, you know, I had geophysics lecturers who had a lot of maths in the, in the course, but, but, you know, there was a perception that it wasn't a real science in that sense. And, and even when I went back to civil engineering um, 10 or 15 years ago, they had this idea that geologists just sort of wave their arms around and and say, oh, yes, well, there was a river here once, you know, and it's a kind of black box of magic, you know, and actually I was trying to tell them even even then, and I mean, a long time before that, geology had become a predictive science. It's, it's, it's a hard science. I mean, actually, in certainly at Imperial, and I think at many universities, um, <clears throat> the biggest users of computing resources um, in the 1980s and 1990s, you know, decades ago, uh, were geology departments because they were crunching such vast amounts of data for seismic interpretation and all those sorts of things, um, and and these big systems and doing numerical modelling and all those sorts of things. So it's it's a very different subject to to how people perceive it. Um, and I think what holds people in good stead, what held me in good stead, I think will hold people in good stead in the future. Which is you know the advice I was given is if if you want to do this. <clears throat> don't do a geology A level or, or you know school sub- subject. Do maths, physics, chemistry, biology, those sorts of subjects. Those things, if you understand them, you get through them. They they give you a bedrock, 
and from which you can be you can adapt and and always kind of develop and everything else so i i think i think that's good advice it, it that that stands now you know get the same kind of foundations good strong foundations um that that give you the the yeah the foundations from which to to deal with all the changes and the, and the new things that come in and i think the other uh thing to sort of think about i suppose and, and, and develop is the ability to embrace change embrace technology embrace new ideas don't get stuck in a rut lots of people get attached to their pet theory their ideas and you know i'm known i suppose for always having believed in a, a geologically active venus but my ideas about venus have been challenged and changed throughout my career um, and and i and they're still going to change because I, I discover new things and people tell me other things and i think oh yeah okay i hadn't really thought about it like that that actually makes more sense than my ideas and having that open mind being able to step aside and you know put your ego to one side really i suppose and um, that's that's really what gets you through in science it's it's about more than you i think the both pieces of advice are, are sound for no matter what you want to do um you know have a broad understanding of many different fields and also just keep an open mind just because someone's questioning you doesn't mean they're uh, challenging you they just either want to understand better or um, help you refine your ideas that's right i mean <laughs> people are only a threat if you compete with them if you embrace them and work with them and say you know actually that's really interesting let's look at that let's explore it do it together you actually get so much more out of it mm -hmm. um and you're never as i say you're never right anyway you know everything we do in science is wrong so you're always looking for the next best interpretation and you know the next step forwards well at least you should be you know i mean there are people in my degree you, you know lecturers when i was an undergraduate who didn't really believe in plate tectonics i mean this newfangled idea that had been proven for you know 30 years or something <laughs> but you know, no no we don't just inclines my son that sort of thing um and it, you don't want to be like that you want to be open and it's more fun being open richard thank you for everything uh thanks for sharing your passion and your expertise and your stories and uh best of luck getting to venus thank you very much it's been a pleasure Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen on Spotify Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.